0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Out of the
1: 93 I woke up, drove to the store, and bought me a DLPC. 100 megahertz processor speed, this is all you need, he said. Trust me. I opened it up as soon as I came home. Please hold my calls, because I'm using the phone. Dial up, modem, analog connection, 56K.
0: That's our pal Ronald Jenkins with 56K, his homage to 1990s internet life. Well, Verizon, the telco giant, took out AOL for $4.5 billion last week. And these guys made a ton of money over the last decade on 56K technology. But that game has obviously since changed. Verizon swears this acquisition is not totally random. It is getting a ton of emails, the Huffington Post, TechCrunch, and Gadget, and your aunt's dial-up email account. 56K! Nevertheless, the suits behind this deal hailed it as a coup. Forget the fact that AOL is worth a sliver of its peak $222 billion value at the end of 1999. Here's what they said. Quote, The combination creates the first and most powerful media technology company on the planet. Oh, really? To which my guest today cried BS. Can we all agree the justification for this AOL Verizon deal are bat shit insane? That is Sarah Lacey, founder and editor of Pando Daily. Thank you for joining us.
2: You know, when you said BS, I got a little nervous that we weren't going to be able to swear on this show. Well, and we'll, thought, we'll, beep, what it, we'll beep it out. We'll say bat guano,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, Bat Guano Insane. So you're joining us via Skype on your deluxe Wi Fi in San Francisco. No
2: 56K here. We are fully on the broadband.
0: Fully on the broadband. And let's not short shrift what Pando Daily is doing, Sarah, if you just give me a second. Pando Daily is the leading solutions provider, scalable with traction, changing the world and the Internet of Things. Mobile first, space age, rounded corners, bundled and unbundled. And of course, in the cloud, 24 7 and mission critical. How's that?
2: That's perfect. We bridge the world of atoms and bits.
0: <laughs> I love it. You know, you wrote this scathing piece last week, um, really clicked about everywhere and sent around. That What is it about AOL mergers that make no sense? Obviously, these guys at their peak acquired Time Warner, which actually did make sense for them because they spent the funny money yes. of, of dot com riches.
2: Deal made total sense. That actually was the days when something was a portal. None of us understood the internet. You went to a handful of places to access it, and they needed loads of content to show it you. And at the same time, you know, big media companies were trying to figure out, you know, what do they do with this content? How do they start getting it on the internet? The deal actually made sense, and given the valuations at the time, it was not "quote unquote" crazy. I mean, that's that's what's crazy about this is. Comparatively, And at the end of my piece, I put a clip of Steve Case explaining the rationale for that deal. And if you watch it, makes way more sense than everything they said about well, the They AOL were, they were dancing
0: deal. together on the dais, I remember. And uh, poor Jerry Levin. Oh, no, it was Ted Turner. He said this was the best feeling since the first time he made love, which uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> that kind of doomed it. That was my cue to sell
2: when you know we're in a bubble. Like, I feel like since, you know, the like early 2000s, people in Silicon Valley have been freaking out and saying, are we in a bubble? I think you have identified the sign of if, it's, if we're in a bubble. If a billionaire old money mogul says a deal is like the first time having sex. That's
0: no, wait, wait, not- Sarah, correction. If your Iranian relative who you've never even knew existed calls you up and asks you to buy um, LinkedIn <laughs> or Facebook, that's when you know it's a bubble. I know you're out there in the rarefied Bay Area air, but that's that's my contrarian indicator. I actually want to go back to um, an out-of-body experience I had. I know this is getting inside baseball. When I was in New York, I moved back to New York, I think it was 2005. And I don't know, sometimes around then I showed up at the Time Warner Cable Service Center in Midtown Manhattan to pick up a cable modem. And there's um, Steve Case up on the TV Um, you know, uh, uh, announcing that he would be leaving the company or something like that. Steve Case was obviously uh, the big brains behind AOL, the architect behind this deal, the founder of AOL, right? Yeah. And I looked around and I saw all these, uh, you know, Time Warner, Roadrunner, high-speed internet logos around this room. And these two, I mean, the no-brainer of that deal was you thought that AOL was buying – the fat pipes of Time Warner Cable, which, after all, Comcast just tried to buy Time Warner Cable. You thought this would be a broadband play. I could never, as a Time Warner Cable Roadrunner customer in New York City, ever buy, you know, AOL broadband. They never got together. Um, Northern Virginia, where AOL was based, never talked to Time Warner Cable in Queens. And uh, that was the great opportunity. That was the rationale of this. What's the rationale of Verizon, which Mm -hmm. is one of the largest ISPs in the country, Internet service providers, has you know, all of these accounts across the country, um, Fios accounts, why would they buy AOL now?
2: Well, the story that they want to tell you is that it's about mobile video. And that's somewhat true. It's not true to the degree that they're talking about it. Um, And that's what was so weird about this deal. Like, It was announced and everyone in the financial press is like nodding and being like, "Mm, yes, mobile video, mobile video, it's very hot, mobile video. As if like, we all actually believe that when, you, when Verizon CEO wakes up and says, we need to dominate mobile video because our core business is slowing in growth and getting commoditized, bankers, get me AOL. Like it is not the three letters when you think of with mobile video. And also
0: and- that's superlative where they say this combination creates the first and most powerful media technology company on the planet. Maybe somewhere in that legalese boilerplate that's true. But uh, hello, what about Google? What about Facebook? Even Yahoo, which is trying to manage a legacy business has a much bigger market share in these things. Why wasn't this asset attractive as a roll-up to some of the players you deal with in the Bay no, area?
2: Exactly. No, exactly. That's the point. I mean, here's, here's the reality of, um, all bullshit aside of, of what AOL has. Now, Tim, War- Tim Armstrong has spent the
0: CEO Hon- of AOL,
2: right. Who, you know, used to be this head honcho, very slick sales guy at Google. And Google is one of those companies like Facebook. If you were there during its glory days, you looked really good. And you could get and, hired anywhere. Yeah. And you kind of – no one really knew if you were actually good or not until you went to another job. And frankly, we're kind of seeing the same thing with Marissa. I mean she was another sort of star of that era.
0: At Yahoo. She was, she was one of the, one of the uh, early architects of Google and is now CEO of Yahoo and is, is similarly being pressured, like, what is your identity? What's your reason for being? Well, yeah. walk me back on Tim Armstrong because yeah, AOL, Tim Armstrong. AOL was cleaved off of Time Warner. They unwound that deal in the mid-2000s. Time Warner went its separate ways. You know, it was, the, it was the most disastrous deal ever. I think there was north of $100 billion of losses and write-downs. But then when AOL reconstituted, what, as a portal, as a, as a whatever, it brought in this guy who was looked at as a dealmaker, Tim Armstrong, who was yeah. briefly Very, at Google.
2: He's sort of a, a Silicon Valley version of Don Draper.
0: Of you Don know, Draper. Like-
2: Yeah. Like Don Draper himself is actually like very charming because he's in like, you know, the 1970s New York advertising world where, you know, the bar for being sort of a a swarthy rogue is quite high. In Silicon Valley, it's a very low bar. So like Tim Armstrong is sort of the, you know, not poor man's, whatever the phrase for, I guess, geek man's like the Silicon Valley version of, of Don Draper. That's sort of what he has. He had sort of gelled hair. He was handsome ish. He talked a good game. He could talk people. People into deals. You know, he was the guy who seemed like he could present on Wall Street, but you know, got technology because he had been at Google. And the problem with these Google people sort of leeching out of Google and taking over these other old has been portals is those, those old has been portals lost to Google because they, they didn't get technology and they were really content companies. And Marissa and especially Tim at AOL tried to save these things by making them more of content companies. But no one one at Google understands content.
0: Well, step back for a minute. So he rolled up a bunch of assets. You, you, uh, after you left business week, you wrote for tech crunch. Correct. Yes, the huge portal. Michael Michael Arrington's blog, which everybody reads in Silicon Valley. It's a must read. Uh, Armstrong paid a lot for that asset. Uh, using No, he,
2: he didn't actually. I, like, Give him credit. He actually got Huffington Post and TechCrunch for pretty cheap. I mean, he wasted more money on Patch than he did on Huffington Post well, and Well, un-
0: unpack this all for me right now because the wisdom here is that it's not like Verizon is buying the enterprise value of HuffPo and TechCrunch. It's not like Verizon said yeah. – we need that all. original content. We need these bylines. We need these great journalists. You know, get me Ariana Huffington. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not any of that. Why well, are they? Everyone, what?
2: everyone left from those two publications? I mean, those two publications, the demographics have been eroded because it's AOL homepage traffic being flooded at it anyway. So, so,
0: and you still think that those were good acquisitions on balance?
2: Um, I think that they were good purchases i think they were good purchases for the amount of money i think unfortunately they were in the hands of a man who did not understand content at all so the i mean to step back at a high level his idea was i still have all this money that's coming from dial up i mean this was still the core of AOL's business they still have what I, about I, what
0: 2 2 billion of of unlimited dial up customers right now 2 billion customers
2: Uh, Yeah, something like that. And it's like, it's, uh, when I left, it was the only profitable part of AOL. When did you leave? Um, right about a year after, uh, they bought us. When was that? So three and a half years ago. I was on maternity leave. So it's the age of my son at any time. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, that was sort of when the whole company exploded. But so his idea was he was going to take this sort of annuity of free money that he had from people who didn't know they had to pay for the internet anymore. And he would refashion this modern uh, content company around that. Now, why that was Tim Armstrong's idea, I don't know, because he's not a man who understands content in the slightest. But he had co-founded this company, Patch, previously. That was kind of looking for a reason to exist. And the idea with patches, it would be like something like 800 local news sites. It was incredibly expensive and fragmented and messy and, you know, sort of a disaster. So he bought that. And then he had to buy other media assets because AOL had all of these different sites, but they were all totally dependent on the homepage. No one went to like, the unofficial Apple web blog, you know, or joystick or whatever these things were called. So he had to actually go and buy these things. Now, he identified good acquisitions. And he actually, because he's sort of this poor man's Don Draper, did a pretty good job of selling and making people want to be a part of this vision. I mean, Mike genuinely believed in him. I thought it was a horrible idea. Mike Errington,
0: the founder of TechCrunch.
2: Yeah, it was a hook, line, and seeker had sort of little, you know, was doodling on his notebook. Him and Tim Armstrong with hearts between them. Like let me, he let, was, me ask, he, let me, he, me he ask let me ask you this.
0: Let me ask you this. Timeout. What would mm-hmm. it have taken for them? Because you have since become a franchise. You went off, struck out on your own with Pando Daily. You are a thinkfluencer, a thought leader, Bay Area cognoscenti. You rub mm-hmm. shoulders with you know all these all these uh, you know post money valuation people trading at fifteen times, trailing you with that, whatever it is. How could how could he have kept you and cultivated you as kind of the the Sarah Lacey um, subsidiary of that TechCrunch acquisition.
2: Well, I was supposed to take over as the editor-in-chief when Mike decided he wanted to be a VC, which Mike sort of guilted me into. And because I really did care about the TechCrunch team and brand, I was willing to do. Um, I'll tell you how he could have kept me, not exploded the company while I was in labor and given my job to someone else. That mm. that would have been step one. I mean, this man does not understand. He, he bought two of the most visionary and yet – Irascible and emotional. You
0: mean Ariana um, Ariana Huffington? Yeah. Of course you don't understand my genius team. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Do you tell me no, that?
2: She's the only one who stayed. Because She won. And, and here's the thing. I saw I saw all of this from behind the scenes. So he buys Ariana and Mike, two incredibly hard personalities, and you know this as well as I do, the, the, how, you, how you become a media mogul, what makes you a good boss in media is managing insane talent and the ability to manage and keep insane talent happy because crazy talent that builds these platforms and builds these audiences has ego, has baggage, has all this stuff that goes with it. And he couldn't for even one year – keep michael Arrington and ariana well from sarah going sarah
0: i gotta t- i gotta tell you i you know full disclosure i get no whiff of insanity or craziness off you you were perfectly <laughs> hinged you're perfectly balanced you're even killed, you're a ph of seven late <laughs> laid, laid, yeah laid back with your mind on your money and your money on your mind I'm what are you like yeah you know, so my, what the my interest
2: strategy is to always be in business with someone who looks crazier than me. So like when I was next to Mike all of those years, Everett in the Valley thought I was the rational one. Now I'm in business with Paul Carr, who everyone thinks is crazy. And I always seem like the rational one comparatively.
0: Um, okay, if you say so. But <laughs> I want to understand this. So his, his tenure at AOL was maybe he was just a banker CEO and he was rolling up a bunch of things and preparing this thing for an exit because he did have some master strokes. Like there was that period where he unpacked all these patents. Nobody realized AOL had patents and its stock suddenly surged. I think it was 25% that's or 50% in a thing day. That's the that
2: has helped their stock. I mean, it's like, that's his version of Marissa Mayer's, you know, Alibaba with Yahoo. Like she did the Alibaba deal that brought in a load of value and appeased Wall Street. The patents was Tim's version of that. But you know, the kicker, that's probably, if you look back, one of two things that Tim did that actually were effective, that was not even his idea. That came from an activist shareholder. Like, this man was not effective. This was about his personal vision quest of, when I'm not inside Google, can I be good? And I think it was so about his ego that he could never get whoa, whoa, out Sarah, his own way.
0: Do you promise us that you are indeed gruntled or disgruntled post this experience? <laughs> I want to make sure that we, we booked a gruntled guest.
2: I I am disgruntled.
0: So, you know, there were other people that were disgruntled because he had some crazy sharp elbows over there. I remember he fired somebody during a conference call for taking pictures and then he blamed mothers for having a traumatic pregnancy that kind of sapped the health care account. I mean, who does this?
2: Well, I mean, those are the moments when you see Tim Armstrong's soul. And I, you know, I saw a lot of this behind the scenes uh, when I was still there, and I, and I did plan on staying there for many, many years and being the editor in chief of TechCrunch. Even post sale, I gave it a year. When you know, when I first heard about the deal, I was like, "That's it, I'm out of here." Like, I was kind of talked off that ledge. Uh, they left us independent. Heather was still running the website, so I thought maybe it could work. But no, I saw so many ugly things out of that guy. I mean, look from a media point of view. The, I don't know if you remember the AOL Way memo, which basically said, try to put as many SEO words into every headline so we can maximize traffic. Okay, okay, okay.
0: By. Having said that, what let's... What us we let's, told you? Okay, let's maximize, uh, let's SEO optimize this podcast <laughs> right now. I'm going to do just, you know, over the next minute, a little back and forth with you. Ready? One, two, three. Talking Biz News. You go. Taylor Swift. Romanesco. Frozen um platform agnostic Ariana Huffington TechCrunch Mark Andreessen Cloud Lady Gaga. I have no All right, there to we go. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get a couple Romanesco Romanesco. I want this podcast to be heard, darn it. I, so, I mean, that that gets to something we're going to we're going to speak about after the break, but um I I just want to know uh right now uh you know, briefly with the state of your business, do you think you're able to do something that you would never have been given the creative bandwidth and freedom to do under AOL TechCrunch with Pando Daily?
2: You know, I I actually I feel like we did still have a lot of independence when I was there. Um, I think over time that probably would have been eroded. But I think if you had a strong person still running TechCrunch, I think they were so confused with what to do with that asset. And it was frankly such a small part of their empire that they pretty much gave it some leeway. I think the problem is every adult left and it was just kind of these kids running it who – kind of wanted to be VCs and rub shoulders with people. And it it just stopped being about journalism. But I don't think it was so much them censoring stuff. No, I do think Verizon will do that. I mean, if if TechCrunch writes anything about net neutrality, no way that's going to stay up. No way.
0: (laughs) Full disclosure, we're talking with... Sarah Lacey, founder and editor of Pando Daily, former colleague of mine at Business Week. Uh, we are um, crooning a eulogy for AOL, which just sold out to Verizon. Um, you're going to listen to a bit more Ronald Jenkins 56K, and we'll be right back.
1: I need all my- long into 95, I thought to myself, I'm going to build a snazzy website, technically capable, professional skills. I'll stick with my dear PC, keeping it real. IP, fiber optic cords, with a few clicks, I connect to the world, I connect to the internet at lightning speeds. I know a lot of people across the
0: country. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Sarah Lacey. Uh Bay Area big timer. She's founder and editor of Pando Daily. I have a, a big meaning of life question for you, as I typically do for most of our guests on this great so show. God, it's
2: early my time for the meaning of life.
0: It's fine. Content, what is it worth? Why, why are VCs swarming around things like BuzzFeed, like Vox? I mean, look- there's a ton of it it's like sipping from a fire hydrant you and i were at at business week for a long time which was something that we always thought we'd be protected because it was a sprig of parsley on the big plate <laughs> that was McGraw Hill they'd never really mind the losses or anything like that but the losses got so awful in the 2008 that they they sold us for nothing to Bloomberg, why suddenly are all these VCs, there's only more content out there, everyone is a LinkedIn influencer, everyone is writing 300-word <laughs> dispatches, why are VCs lining up to pay any money on this, and who is making money on content?
2: I mean, right now, the the salaries that people are making at those crazy funded unicorn or pre-unicorn content companies are the ones making most of the money. I mean, and Vice, Vice seems to be making a load of money. I mean, look, it's similar to what I was saying, just saying about Tim Armstrong. Like he was much more clumsy about it, but it's like, he was like content and went around buying this stuff and didn't really understand it. The VCs investing in these things really don't understand it. They really don't. I mean, I think the reason people like, look, Henry Blodgett gets apoplectic, when you mention Buzzfeed and Jonah Peretti, because he does not understand why he's, but he feels like he's been doing the same game, and he doesn't understand why Buzzfeed.
0: Henry Blodget, so being the enough. former the former dot com analyst who actually covered AOL, who's since gone on to from do Wall
2: Street, and so he thought, let's see, where could I go where ethics won't be an issue? Well, We're no. In fairness, them.
0: in fairness, he's put together a great, you know, on, on Alley Insider, Silicon Valley Insider. I've read some analysis that he's done, for example, on the New York Times, on AOL, on Google, on Apple, that he never could have done. on on wall street and i think he is you know i think he's rehabilitated his name i don't understand why a person like jeff bezos goes and throws a lot of money into it we know jeff bezos wastes money on phones that never go anywhere he doesn't particularly (laughs) care about profitability is this just a vanity investment for a lot of the vcs you see out there or what is the what is the rate of return on content what what where does content make money
2: I think people think it will make money. I mean, and, But I think the issue is you have only two plays in content right now. You have two plays and two plays only. You have the big mega mass play, which BuzzFeed is running better than anyone else because Jonah Peretti just – gets how to do that better than anyone else and unlike the Huffington Post he really has brought in people like Ben Smith who are great journalists. I mean sadly enough Buzzfeed has done some of the best journalism and hardcore reporting on tech of any way way more than TechCrunch. And what week. is what is the other what is
0: the year. other big play?
2: The other and it, but it's like you got to be Buzzfeed scale or you're no one in that game. And the other is the vice play mm-hmm. which is don't give a shit about macro traffic tiny niche Totally give up having a big audience, but have the most valuable audience and come up with really creative ways to monetize it. And and like that's what we're doing. Because now, I Sarah, think walk me walk me bitch, through what
0: walk me through what Buzzfeed does because from the outside, I just see like listicles, I see clickbait. I don't understand the genius of it and why these people. I mean, Felix Salmon had a great interview with with Jonah Peretti. He's a skeptic. He's a financial journalist. He wouldn't. Buy all that stuff, hook, line, and sinker. What's Buzzfeed doing that's attracting all this money exactly? What's the what's the the genius behind that model that I don't get?
2: Well, I mean, look at a high level. This is about just building the newest, most powerful media organization in the world. And Jonah's theory on it is. You know, you can read something that's very fluffy and, you know, ridiculous, like a, you know, mashup of the best lines from the Gilmore girls. And then you can turn around and read, you know, hard hitting investigative journalism. And his view is the internet is people doing, wanting to do both of those things. And why not do them in the same place? Now, several years ago, I remember we did a Panda Monthly interview with him, and everyone was still really skeptical because everyone, this was right when Ben Smith was hired, no one thought they were really going to do serious journalism. Everyone's like, there's not going to be a White House press person with BuzzFeed. Turns out there is. I mean, turns out they've actually done pretty impressive journalism and they have this huge, huge audience. That's incredibly valuable. The other thing that's interesting that Jonah did is, you know, he burned the boats when it came to banner ads. When he left Huffington Post and started BuzzFeed, he said, I think banners are going away. I think they're useless. We have loads of traffic because we do all these viral you know, videos that people would love to give us money for banners, we're not taking it. We're going to really start pushing, you know, sponsored content and native content, which I know whoa, everyone whoa, whoa, at whoa, whoa. S- s- slow.
0: slow down, slow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're talking e-business solutions for the 21st century B2B. We got to un this. We got to de-jargon <laughs> it. Again, <laughs> You gave me a soft rationale for BuzzFeed changing the world. What are they ultimately doing? Selling ads? Are they more in cahoots with with sponsors? Why is what BuzzFeed is doing, why is it why is it more profitable and attractive to venture capitalists than AOL.com as a portal or Huffington Post?
2: <laughs> well, for one thing, the problem with AOL and what happened to Huffington Post is they it was aging traffic. I mean, this is the catch 22 with all these portals. They still have like hundreds of millions of people who come to AOL.com or come to Yahoo.com, but they're not a desirable audience. And BuzzFeed is a desirable audience. It is a young, engaged, desirable audience that's consuming content. And like, content is a good business. It's just how do you work out, you know, the, the, Profits and losses of it to make it something that's you know not like a newspaper, and that's what Buzzfeed has done really really well. But it's like you've got to be ridiculously gargantuan, huge to play that game. Otherwise, you know you're in this sort of downward spiral of CPMS, and someone's always bigger than you. Wait, cost you per. You
0: explain the cost CPM for our listeners.
2: I mean, it's based. I mean, effectively, it's just the rate at which you, you know, you buy ad space. It's the, it's the price per thousands of eyeballs
0: now here's my thing isn't that dropping precipitously because after all there are a lot of there are people out there like you and me who want to make a living off content and there are other people out there they're executives pr people if you look at the forbes.com model you don't know what you're clicking now if you click a click a forbes story is it a pr person is it a self-proclaimed power influencer um you know they they kind of sold that soul in order to get other people to write for them for free so why um you know we're, we're out there looking to get paid for our content? You're, these guys, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, they're competing with people out there who are willing to do it for free, and there's ever more amounts of it. Uh, so how do you, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? These investigative reporters that BuzzFeed hires cost money. A fully yeah. loaded investigation, or a White House correspondent, or an investigative series, that probably does not have a great return on investment when you're talking about the economics of of CPM.
2: But this is where the world has completely changed for the better in the last few years. That was the thinking of the first generation of blogs because they were still going off banners. BuzzFeed doesn't go off banners. What does BuzzFeed go go off off of?
0: How does BuzzFeed make its money?
2: You ready for jargon? Sponsored content.
0: Sponsored content is what? Unpack that for us because we we heard John Oliver do it, right? He said it's repurposed bovine waste.
2: It, that's pretty much it. So there's a big there's a big range in what sponsored content can be. The way BuzzFeed does it is it is incredibly extreme. They allow advertisers to log into their CMS system, which is the system that reporters go into every day to file their stories. They allow advertisers to log in the same system and say Starbucks can write their own top 10 list of why Starbucks lo- or, you know hilarious things you hear in line at Starbucks.
0: And so they're getting paid. It's like on demand from the advertisers. It's the tail wagging the dog. Forget and about the Chinese it, wall,
2: right? It's it, and it's like this. This freaks people out, but it is way more profitable than CPMS and banner ads. But here's the thing. I mean, this is why I'm saying the. I mean, it, it, you can talk about the Buzzfeeds of the world because they're jaw dropping in terms of their their size and their eyeballishness and and all of that. But the other really more interesting play here is someone like Vice. I mean, Vice has comparatively a tiny audience, but they have this hipster tattooed millennial male audience that advertisers want to reach. So, I mean, they make tons of money. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so when you when you read an article, gosh, I hope my mother-in-law doesn't hear this, but when a, a vice correspondent or freelancer um, consumes cocaine through his rear end so you don't have to, what the headline says, what are the economics of something like that? That's just shock jockeying, putting it out there. I mean, who's sponsoring that?
2: We no longer – fortunately, Blog 1.0 was about – what is the cost of content? If I I cannot spend more than $300 on a 1,000-word thing because there's no way of recouping it. It was very like, look at the exact return on investment. Blog 2.0 isn't about that. It is we have some stuff that brings in the eyeballs and we have some stuff that's our prestige brand journalism that gets people excited, that's stuff you can't find anywhere else. Blog 1.0, so... Aggregated and commoditized everything that the 2.0 blogs had to actually build up some reasons that they were distinct destinations that actually could have loyal readerships. So you know, Buzz when Buzzfeed is looking at the ROI of this, they're return not on set. investment. God, come on, ROI is now jargon. Your audience is gonna have to step it up if they don't even know ROI. I think you think they're dumber than they are.
0: No, mom's listening to this, Sarah. Step back. Take <laughs> off your, mom your cool. The only
2: listener? Is their mom the only listener? Be she honest. is.
0: She is. She is. She is. People will write you and uh, they'll thank you. Trust me. Let me understand. Let me understand this though. So uh, one, you're talking blog 2.0. Aren't we like in blog Uh, 7.6? This is 2015 already.
2: There's been two big waves. There was the, you know, GigaOM, TechCrunch, Huffington Post wave. And then there's been the BuzzFeed, Vice, uh, you know, us on the tiny scale, Vox, Verge wave.
0: And now, GigaOm recently shuttered. I mean, it ran into a credit crunch. I mean, Dude, it's weird it's a
2: story in Silicon Valley. Well, weird interesting. But the in but here's Valley. what
0: I, here's what I don't understand. And this is getting into like the big cosmic abyss. Uh, we're no longer we're no longer defined by the the brands at the at the you know the banners the mastheads we're at. You're no longer kind of Business Week, Sarah Lacey. You're Thinkfluencer Sarah Lacey, your Pando Daily, that's your own creation. If you bring in these people, these stable of writers like Gigahome had, had some amazing writers, I would read them dutifully. And then suddenly they're out of work, uh, you know, like a month ago, or two months ago. They can just go to some other place. Fortune can take them. You're totally a freelancer if you're Walt Mossberg or Kara Swisher. Those are the brands, those are the franchises. So uh, a, a lot of this stuff is personality driven. And then there's this other world that's all commodity. I could not yeah, name no, but HuffPost. That's
2: so, but that's so overstated. Like the, the personal brand thing is so overstated. There, Platforms are really indispensable in making these guys stars. I mean, M.G. Siegler, one of the biggest stars from TechCrunch, he was, you know, no one comparatively read him when he was at VentureBeat. He comes to TechCrunch and the next day it's like he's M.G. Siegler. He leaves TechCrunch and he's writing on his personal blog, tiny amount of traffic. Michael Arrington, who created TechCrunch, who everyone thought the flaw of TechCrunch was it was only Michael Arrington's football. He starts Uncrunched, nowhere near the traffic. I mean, like the, even if it's your own platform and it's you and another kid, platforms are so important in this thing. People overstate personal brands like crazy.
0: Well tell me what is a star journalist a star hire let's take someone like a Felix Salmon who is his mm-hmm. own brand he's he's surfed through places like portfolio.com um you know he was at Reuters briefly uh people were waiting like when he announced a while ago that he was leaving Reuters like where's Felix going to go where's Felix going to go you know and he shows up at a place uh um what was it uh this is fusion fusion nobody had really heard of fusion beforehand it's another thing put together it has two media backers behind it what is it uh, you know ABC Disney and was it Univision or something down in Miami um, so they get together but this is the person who moves it how, how if you're going out there for Pando Daily suppose you get another slug of venture investment and you get a chance to hire a star writer a star byline a person with franchise ability and think fluence and thought leadership what is, the, <laughs> what is the calculus for you on ROI are you, are you looking to make ad money off him like walk me through that
2: no, look, we're a weird organization because almost all of these organizations have a either tech or ad sort of publisher's type person running the whole company. With Pando, I'm the CEO. So we're one of the only places, I mean, including even the first wave of tech blogs that has an editorial person as the CEO. So we don't really think in those short-term metrics. I mean, we really feel like we're, we're building a highly, highly valuable audience of really smart people because we don't chase views and we don't chase banners and all these other things. And as a result, we have this comparatively small, but super Valuable audience. And it's a very long term play. So, I mean, we build our company very differently. So, what I would look for in terms of a star and have looked for in terms of hiring, it's one of two things. The people who tend to work for us are either really young people that we get out of college and we mentor and we train to be really good journalists and we do really great editing for because the problem is there's no bench anymore. There's no farm system for training journalists sure. because all the daily papers have gone out of business and no one working at a blog is getting any mentorship or training. So anyone who's been in journalism for five years has basically had no mentorship and no training and they've probably picked up a lot of bad habits. So that whole, the mid-career journalists in general are the ones who have not worked for us as hires. What works are people right out of ha- college who want to work their asses off, who we can really train and develop, or people who are senior in their career and are just sick of the bullshit and want to work somewhere where they can make a decent salary, do investigative journalism, not worry about a, you know, a CEO who's going to quash their story because it pissed someone off and, you know, work with like-minded journalists. So we have someone like Mark Ames, who's like a legend, um, in the investigative journalism world working for Pando for way less than he could make, you know, otherwise. um, you know, we have someone like Paul Carr who started several media companies. I mean, you know, we have some pretty senior people writing for us and they, and that's what motivates them. Meanwhile, like this kid, David Holmes, who we hired out of NYU has become one of the single best writers on digital media and digital music anywhere in tech has been an absolute phenomenon that we got out of nowhere. Now the problem with the developing them um, theory is you develop a lot of people who think that They want to do this job and they get into it and they don't. And there's a lot of people who say they want coaching and mentoring and they get into it and they don't. So, you know, you've got to if you're going to take risks on people, you got to sort of look each other in the eyes and admit when that risk you know, isn't working out. But I would never like go get if I had endless venture money, I would never be like Nick Bilton. Give me a price. I have to have you on the site. I just I think that's a recipe for disaster.
0: Are you playing for enterprise value right now? Are you effectively – you're not you're not managing this business for cost per clicks or whatever BSE eyeball metric that's deflating rapidly, but you're looking for a long-term buyout or an enterprise value thing. I mean, to de-jargonize it for our people, it's like a sports franchise that's going to get bought out or the way Huffington Post was something that – what Ariana Huffington came up with in her living room after the 2004 election um, – it was other people's content. A lot of celebrities writing it. It 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 got the cheap uh, banner ads and and whatnot. And she was able to flip it to someone like Tim Armstrong.
2: I'm never selling this company. This you... is why I haven't raised more venture capital because I'm never selling this company.
0: Uh, are you doing really well? Like, are you putting three dryer sheets uh, in every load?
2: No, no. Because I, you know, true story, like. I'm going through a divorce. So I'm now like a single mom with two kids on a startup salary. I'm not remotely doing well, but, you know, the company is
0: doing well. And so right now you're just reinvesting a lot of this back into talent and building this thing out.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're not profitable yet, but we're really, really close. Like we've doubled sales year over year. You know, earlier when we were jargoning it up on CPMs, I mean, here's the thing about something like uh, Pando. Our audience is so good. We charge astronomically high CPMs. I mean, a typical tech blog is doing like a dollar or two dollar rates. We do like 16 to at times for the right segmentation. We've done $30 CPMs. Now, banners aren't our core business, but We charge a huge premium to reach our audience, and so far people pay it.
0: Yeah, but you are not the first and most powerful media technology company on the planet. That would be Verizon AOL. (laughs) Full disclosure, stay with us. We're talking to Sarah (laughs)
1: Lacey. Don't try to get on my chat room and hate. Animated GIF files dancing on my screen Email attachments with pics of me I think about the future to 2003 I think about my PC depreciating on me I don't mind, it ain't nothing to me
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are enjoying 56K by our pal Ronald Jenkins. That's a homage to everything 1999-2000. And I thought it would be a great song to use now that AOL was taken out for the princely sum of $4.4 billion. Sarah Lacey, editor and founder of Pando Daily out in San Francisco. We we're talking uh, previously about um, the rapid devaluation of content. Content making people out there that are not getting mentored, they're not getting paid what they used to. Mid-career journalists, newspapers are going out of business. Our publication, Business Week, was was sold off like some sort of side of beef. Uh, what not would you say? Not
2: even a side of beef. You get more money for a side of beef.
0: All right. So for a Big Mac, not even a Big Mac, a dollar would be a uh, six piece chicken McNuggets right now. That's the stuff. But <laughs> hey, you, you guys heard of McDonald's? Elsewhere? Anyway, uh, listen, I I yeah, want to
2: McDonald's. We just don't get Happy Meal toys.
0: <laughs> J school. Suppose someone out there is listening to this right now, has a dream of going out there, loves writing, loves the craft. What would you recommend to a college student thinking about majoring?
2: Only people in New York media say the craft. I just want to let you know that.
0: Uh, All right. Whatever whatever it is. All right. Stop calling me out. What would you say about J-School? That's the point.
2: (laughs) Here's the thing. If you were asking me this question five to ten years ago, I would say J-School is a tremendous waste of money. And everyone I know who's my age who went to J-School now works in PR. And anyone who's a working journalist did not go to J-School. Better to get out, have experience on the job. Since running my own company – I've, I've actually changed my view 180 degrees. We have made amazing J school hires, and, I'll, and I think, but it's they have to come from very specific schools. Because here's the thing: schools like NYU are really teaching phenomenal tools to journalists, like coding, like uh, you know, video production. I mean, right now, you know, the difference in the first generation was all you had to do was know how to report and find stories and write, and you learn that better on the job. Now, journalists have to actually have a lot of technical skills as well. They have to know how to tell stories in lots of different ways, and they can't just be scrappy reporters who can string a sentence together that editors can make something out of. So I think if you go to the right journalism school, and I think there's like two or three of them, you know, it, it's actually highly, highly valuable. I used to think we should never hire anyone out of journalism school, any of the jobs I worked for, Last five years, I've found better people out of NYU journalism school than anywhere else,
0: but these people are shelling out upward of seventy five, eighty, ninety thousand dollars for two years. What is it? two years at journalism school? Is it a yeah. year? And are it they going to get any sort of payback on this in this kind of environment where a lot of people are writing for free? A lot of people are coding for free?
2: Oh, look, I mean, people make good salaries. I mean, that's the good thing about, for now, there being a shitload of venture capital, you know, coming into these places. When I was at TechCrunch, we would hire people entry level for like. 30K. Now, people at TechCrunch are making six figures. I mean, there's, you know, most entry, even for us, like an entry level job, you're making at least 50 or 60K, which has always been sort of a good journeyman salary in media in New York. As long as you
0: have plenty of ramen noodles in your duffel bag, right? I mean, that's... Dude,
2: that's about what I made when I went to business week. I mean...
0: Yeah, this is what I don't understand, though. And this gets jargony again. This is VC money. This is like shoveling it from one from one uh, you know person. There's just a lot of. It's like a faith-based model. We're gonna take the VC money. We're gonna invest in the talent, and we're just gonna hope and pray that someday there's gonna be an economic model out of cash flow, out of the the ledger domain of income statement and what people will pay us. Uh, to justify this. On the on the distribution side, it makes sense for all these cable companies and the fat pipes to roll up because there's really no way around paying your cable company $120 a month uh, for the pipes. But there's a very easy way. You know that saying that content wants to be free. Uh, I, I just want to get at when are you going to see more of an immediate return on investment on content? Or are all these players out there just praying?
2: Advice is making a shitload of money. BuzzFeed's making a shitload of money. but again, I mean, they're making they're making money. Well.
0: They're making money on sponsored content, right? which is which is the advertisers coming in and mm-hmm. commandeering the situation and commissioning stories. If you had to say that they're, you know, their big investigations are probably their loss leading stories.
2: But yes and no. I mean, look, you was 60 minutes a loss leader for CBS. Yes, but it, you know, they never made the kind of money on it. But it was their brand. It was their prestige. It was the reason people trusted them. That's still really important in a media landscape. Sarah,
0: people have told you and me time immemorial: invest in your brand. It's like someone tells you to do an event for free. You do it for exposure. Uh, <laughs> now, now that that kind of runs really thin at this point in time in the post, post, post apocalyptic scenario. Of Content Land in the present, where people have gone under, uh, you know, yesterday's king Yahoo, its core business is worth nothing. Effectively, I mean, people value it because it has an enormous stake in in Alibaba, uh, Google, and Facebook are eating everybody else's, slurping everybody else's milkshake. So where are we in this? Again, is it come back to just a lot of us praying that good, um, good content and uh, uh, you know, good curation will prevail in the end, and people will actually pay for it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that we – I think there's a lot of money being made from content right now. I think it's a way rosier view than it was a few years ago. I'll tell you what terrifies me, and I've told um, kids coming out of journalism school this when they're thinking about where to go work. The one question I would ask is, is a company you're joining, is their core business model events? And if their core business model is events, they are long term. That is the scariest place to be as a media company. And it's what everyone who doesn't have another way to make money is copping out to. And it's a drug that doesn't scale, that will run dry. And the market for events is getting so glutted. Look, we make some of our money off events. And I'm trying to get us less reliant on that as quickly as possible. Because it is it is a horrible, horrible, horrible way to run a media business. And it's like that's what Fortune's doing. I mean that to me is why I'm so excited looking at something like Vice or buzz or BuzzFeed like you, if you're not going to be a subscription you got to be ads and you got to innovate like hell on what those ads are like and and that's how you survive this thing that's how people have always survived doing journalism it's funny if it's funny that you on
0: events you' it's funny that you mentioned that because right when Time Warner spit out uh, Time Inc it's its magazine publishing arm last year I think it, it spun it off and put an onerous um uh debt uh, burden on the company to have to pay back it wasn't exactly a magnanimous development by the the media company, they almost immediately turned around and used the proceeds to buy Vice. Uh, It was stuff in the news that they wanted to make a swap for this storied magazine franchise, you know, Bartlett and Steele, Henry Luce, uh, various magazine awards. There used to be in its heyday, you know, it owned People Magazine, Time Fortune. There was a drink cart that would come around during close. And that business right now, if you look at Time, Inc., the the legacy magazine business it's become a lot about events. Uh, that's what they if you know if you if you listen to earnings calls they want to yeah. they want to emphasize anything but uh, the actual core uh, uh, writing and journalism. It's it's video it's video products video productions sponsored content. Uh, you're seeing the same out of the Atlantic. It's privately yeah. held, but its events business is critical to it. You're saying that that stuff is not going to save journalism.
2: No, no, not at all. I would put more faith in subscriber-based models than events at this point. And I've done a total 180 on this a couple years ago before actually running my own company. I, I would have, I would have said the opposite. But no, events are. a horrible, horrible way to, even at TechCrunch, one of the smartest things that Heather and Mike did is they made sure we were only 50, 50 events and the rest of the money came from ads. And they made sure they could run the business off of ads and not be too beholden to events. Because the thing is, it doesn't scale. It costs a lot of money to produce an event. And the more events that you try to produce to bring in more revenue and continue to grow the company starts to detract from the value of the event that you're producing. Like, think if you're Kara Swisher and you have this phenomenal, phenomenal 10-year franchise of, you know, D that she's changed into Code Conference. Kara
0: Swisher was the star at at the Wall Street Journal who had the All Things Digital franchise. Right. And they just walked away, Kara and Walt from Rupert Murdoch.
2: Yeah, one of the best conference franchises that's ever been built, one of the most profitable in our space, and their view of scaling that is to have all these mini-code conferences that are this is about digital and this is about this and this is about this and have other reporters whose job it is to lead those – That's diminishing returns because when you get a big get of a speaker, whether it's a celebrity like Kim Kardashian or it's someone like Travis Kalanick, do you put them on stage at your main franchise event or do you have them at one of these little dog and pony show events? How does that guest feel about being on the AAA team versus the big leagues? How does it – it pulls the quality of your content if you're not putting – all of your resources in that main franchise that make it the must attend event of the year. No one can produce 15 must attend events of the year. It's just not what business people will do. And then how do you, you know, divvy up sponsor money? And then part of the magic with a good events franchise is the personality behind it, the person who's doing the on stage interviews. You think everyone in your organization has that level of experience and command of a stage? Of course not. And then the last point is you're you're taking your journalists away from rep- reporting and making them do all this you know revenue generating event stuff for you that's a total pain in the ass to do and so they're not out in the field as reporters now that has a weird effect because They're part of, and they get paid bonuses for producing these events. Okay, so now they're covering these people. They need access to get this speaker to go sit on stage at the event that they're having to plan instead of doing their job. They're getting paid a bonus for getting that guy on stage. Are they covering him in the same way? I think the reliance on access-based events where you need that guy that Evan Spiegel, that Travis Kalanick, whoever the hot person is this week to sit on stage at your event, neuter's journalism more than investor conflicts, more than anything else we've seen. And wow. if it's your whole business Law, you know, you have a nice lifestyle business, but you're not building the future of journalism.
0: Well, is the future of journalism in Facebook? We see Facebook going out there um now, which is effectively walled garden lots of swaths of the internet. You know, millennials, I hate to use that word in an episode. they actually go straight to Facebook. They do much of their curation. um the the, the Facebook, you know, most traffic list is is the single biggest driver of, of internet traffic in many respects. Um, now you have the likes of the New York Times finally going to Facebook and the terms of the surrender are like, all right, we'll let you host the content if this is going to load faster. Um, yeah. you know, maybe you'll you'll let us share most of the ad revenue. Is is this a, a a company to kind of be trusted? After all, the New York Times is worth something like what? 2 billion dollars and Facebook is worth 150, yeah. 160 billion dollars.
2: So Facebook should absolutely not be trusted. There's one thing that we have learned since... 2008, when Facebook first, no, 2000, I guess, seven or six, when Facebook first unrolled the platform where you could build businesses on top of Facebook and be in the newsfeed. And the one thing we have seen consistently since then is Facebook will continually change the rules, even if it means destroying companies who are wholly reliant on Facebook to exist. So Facebook will change the rules. Facebook will change what people are seeing in their newsfeeds. And Facebook will only be loyal to what's good for Facebook. That said, I don't think publishers had much of a choice. If they are reliant on Facebook for traffic and they've played that social game, then, you know, everyone at some, if they don't take the New York times doesn't take that deal, everyone else is going to take it and their articles are going to be loading faster. And Facebook is in the name of the reader going to prioritize those in the newsfeed. So I think publishers had to do this, but It should absolutely not be trusted and it's going to be a brutal way to make a living. This is the problem with building these mass, mass, mass brands where you don't have a deep, authentic connection with uh, the reader. I mean, everyone said it was weird that Vice wasn't part of this announcement. Maybe the reason is because Vice doesn't want to get into that game and they're not doing mass and so they don't have to.
0: What is your advice for a big company like the New York Times? And obviously, you know that is a pure play. Uh, it's it's still overwhelmingly dependent on its print newspaper revenue uh, to to keep uh, shareholders happy. Even though it's a special class of shareholders, it's it's nominally like it's nominally public. It's family run. How would you innovate? How would you blow this up? Obviously, they do indispensable journalism. Journalism. You just saw this investigation they did of New York City nail salons, which pushed, pushed the governor to. To, to declare an emergency measure to protect workers, but it's just not paying for itself and it's not very relevant in the world where a lot of people are not going straight to the NewYorkTimes.com, but they're going through portals, they're going to the New York Times through Twitter. You're getting your ad revenue kind of frittered away.
2: I mean, I think the New York Times of all of the old media publications is in the best shape. I mean, the concern is less with the New York Times and it's more sort of with everyone else. But, you know, to answer your question... You know, I think the New York Times needs to cut more. Like, I think we all romanticize and think it's great that they have a, you know, what is it like, 600-person newsroom. The reality is, you know, I bet it's kind of like it. I mean, you remember the days of Business Week when there were people who made two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars
0: and like, what? Did, I never made didn't wait, do wait, anything. You made two hundred grand and didn't do anything. Wait
2: a minute. Let me be clear. I made. Fuck all at Business Week. I took a pay cut to go to Business Week and I worked my ass off. I was not in this camp.
0: but you know what? But the but catering But the catering was great. That's the one, you know, that's what I do miss at McGraw maybe Business in, Week.
2: Maybe in New York, we had a rickety dorm fridge in San Mateo and a broken coffee maker. We had zero perks. It was very clear to me business week was started during the Great Depression and stayed there until it got <laughs> (laughs) By Bloomberg, but no, there were people in New York. You saw this all the time who made two hundred thousand dollars a year and wrote one thing a year. Or like when I, my one bizarro experience of doing a cover for Business Week, it's like it was. It took six months, and there were ten editors who rewrote the nut graph ten different ways and like provided (laughs) no value for the reader whatsoever. Like you just can't tell me there's not fat that can be cut from that newsroom without decimating the journalism.
0: I missed that because it was so oblivious, and it, it. Gave us a great time to to be cordial and great to each other. It wasn't as cutthroat as as what business week subsequently became. But I, I just you know a few minutes I we have left. I I just want to understand kind of the overarching experience both as a as a legacy journalist you were at these publications beforehand as a person who went through the Armstrong Ringer at AOL and TechCrunch and a person out there right now. What are we going to be saying five years hence from now? Where actually if you look back at the the big blogs of 2010 or 2005—they're completely anachronistic right now. The models are totally different. Do you see some sort of sea change coming in that could that could change all this? And you know, spare us all the the shibboleths about mobile and conversion and media technology companies <laughs> that are powerful and combining and the Internet of Things. Where is this going?
2: The bundling and the unbundling all at once. Um, so I think. We have we have experienced a sea change in the last five years. I think people give a shit about long form again. I think people give a shit about investigative. And there's real venture money that's going towards how do we make real journalism sustainable again? And I'll tell you when there was something that was incredibly eye-opening for me. Uh, Someone did a study that was just sort of looking at different uh, Twitter accounts of, you know, the Midas list VCs. Like this is the list of VCs who make the most money, um, who are the most successful. You know, we call them the Midas list just to, you know, hearken to Greek mythology. So someone looked at the list of Midas list VCs and said, what are the business publications that they read? And in, in order, it was Wall Street Journal New York Times, Fortune, TechCrunch, and Pando. And we were like 18 months old. So first of all, I was like stunned that we were number five on the list, which is great because my view is it takes a very long time to form those kind of habits. But if you take that aside, it was stunning to me that we're talking about venture capitalists. So we're talking about the most early adopting segment of the business reader audience, the people who should be the ones who are embracing new brands and new platforms. And the top three brands that they go to for business news every single day are 100 to 150 years old. The amazing thing is for all the talk and rhetoric that the Internet has destroyed media, the dominant trusted brands, at least in the space that I'm in, are still multi-century old companies now. These business models are super flawed. Fortune, you're running your whole business off events. You're screwed. New York Times is better than anyone else, but as you said, still trying to figure it out. So do we really think in another hundred years, if the equivalent of this study is done, those three brands are still going to be what these people are reading? No, but it requires someone going long. And I think there's a lot of media entrepreneurs right now who want to go long and want to build things that become that next generation of brands. I mean, this is the story of Vice, 12 years in the making. 10 years ago, 5 years ago, anyone would have laughed someone out of the room if they said Vice was going to be the next multi-billion dollar content company. It's valued at billions of dollars now because they had a long-term view and slogged along for you know, a decade or more. And I think there's a handful of people doing that now. And I think we're fundamentally rebuilding journalism. I think the next hundred year franchises have been started in the last five years. So, you know, that's certainly the way I feel. I feel like we're building the Silicon Valley equivalent of the Washington Post, where we are connected and we know what's going on, but we are consistently biting the hand that feeds us and pissing off half of our audience and people who love us have to read us and the people who hate us have to read us. And just to make sure- 100 years, we'll still be around doing that. Will you be bundled? will Will
0: you be bundled or unbundled? Will you be in the cloud in 100 years?
2: You know, I think we will be in the ozone layer And uh, I think that we will be consistently bundling and unbundling. It's the circle of life.
0: Sarah Lacey, founder and editor of Pando Daily, joining us from the Bay Area, the city on the Bay. Thank you so much for joining us today. That would would be like a dystopian commencement address for a bunch of J-school graduates. But uh, (laughs) I love it.
2: I'm the optimist of the two of us.
0: (laughs) Full disclosure, we are on NPR One, ISDN, Ethernet, ARPANET, and heck, if you want to try it at home, 56K. Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. We'll dial you up next week.